America's public schools are failing millions of kids at tremendous financial cost, but the left continues to dig in their heels to deny school choice to you. Let's discuss. Ron DeSantis isn't just targeting failing schools. Now he's coming after media companies who lie. But is he going too far? And big government is doing its part to protect you from unlicensed barbers and cosmetologists. We will try and cut through the red tape. We're saddling up. Come along and join us. We're going on a midnight ride. Let's go. It's Monday, February 27th, 2023, and you are listening to your home for misinformation and disinformation, also known as The Truth, the Midnight Ride podcast with Connor Coughlin and Paul Runyon. Quick thank you to all of our Midnight Riders. Thanks for spreading the word about this podcast to all your friends. And thank you very much for those five-star ratings that you continue to give us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening. If you haven't done so already, please do so. Continue to tell a friend. I am joined by my good friend, Paul Runyon. Paul, I'm dying to know how your week was. Well, mired in, you know, public school drama. As you know, we're in Broward County, one of the notoriously bad teachers unions, and it seems to make itself uh, rear its ugly head um, when it comes to the education of my kids, which is obviously a, uh, a crazy situation. I think I speak for our audience in saying that I'm shocked that your kids are even in public schools. I know. Yeah, I'm actually shocked myself. But do you, (laughs) you know, you ever get report cards from the school? Do you think the teachers actually take the report card seriously or they just kind of go through the motions? My daughter's teacher, I think, does. But as we spoke about a couple weeks ago, the report cards aren't, they don't mean anything anymore. I mean, there's no, everybody's passing to the next grade. But I do think that at least my daughter's teacher does take it seriously. I guess it depends. Okay, so the way they do it here is they're divided into three, it's like trimesters. And then also the grades are, they don't do A's anymore. It's all like one, two, and three. Yep. So it's like one is, you know, you haven't, you're still working on it. Two, two is like you're able to accomplish it with instruction and three is you've mastered it. So they've divided into three trimesters. And for my son on the report card, it's like, okay, the first trimester it said all ones. But I know for a fact that he's like two levels ahead on math because he does the goes to the after-school math program. And then he's gotten 100 on all his spelling tests. Okay? So I know for a fact that he's like not a one. Then I get the second semester report card, and it's all twos across the board. So I wonder what the third report card's going to be. What do you think? I'm going to guess threes. All threes. I'm wondering if all the kids... I'm starting to wonder if all the report cards are everybody gets a one in the first trimester, everybody gets a two in the second trimester, and then everybody gets a three in the third trimester as like a uniform thing. So I put on the report card, this is like three weeks to a month ago, you can write on there Mm -hmm. requesting a conference to get more details. (laughs) So I submit that in and I've heard nothing so far, right? Then I find out, then I do a little research. I find out from my son and some other people in the class that the teacher's there like once or twice a week. And whoa. Yeah. And then the rest of the time, they either have a substitute or they get split up and sent to the other classrooms. 
because there's no teacher. <laughs> wow. Every week on this show, we continue to, to talk about reasons why we need to get our kids out of these government schools. And that's our first topic today. And by the way... But Connor, if you didn't show up to work, if you only came to work like once or twice a week, I mean, wouldn't you be fired from any normal job? You would. Must be nice to be a public school teacher in America. By the way, across the way, I guess a little bit northwest of you in Orange County, uh, in honor of Black History Month, which, which by the way, thankfully will will end tomorrow. And again, I'm I have nothing against celebrating Black History, but I don't think we should limit it to 28 days a year. I think we should celebrate it 12 months a year and call it American History. But there's a teacher up there at a middle school in. Orange County, up there in Orlando, and he posted some videos on his personal social media of white students feeding and and you know pretending to fan and serve black students and basically having them portray themselves as slaves. And uh, he's been placed on leave, but the teacher was like, "Hey, it's all in good fun. There, there was no ideology or politics behind it. The students, you know, they liked it. You guys are maliciously interpreting this video." Everywhere across the country, there is this woke CRT ideology and, and gender ideology being injected into our children's minds in places like Florida, which is a fairly red state, but all over the country. That's not what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about today what more what you're touching on, which is student performance. And, you know, there was a report this week, and we may have touched on it earlier, in the news media reporting that schools in Illinois— that there were 60 different public schools where every single student, maybe I'm getting the numbers a little off, but every single student in these schools had zero proficiency. Yeah, zero proficiency. I remember reading that. Do you think, did any teachers get fired over that? I'm interested to know. Yeah, I'd be interested to know as well. Zero proficiency in reading or math. <laughs> How is this even allowed? I know, that's like saying... Microsoft as a company had zero revenue last year, right? It's like, how it doesn't even make sense. <laughs> it's so beyond the pale that it doesn't even make sense. And, and as you said, if it was a corporation and they said, hey, your, your entire sales wing sold zero cars last year, all of those people would be pink slipped. Now, where is this tolerated? So 60 public schools at which zero students we're at grade level proficiency, and there's a state senator there, Willie Preston, who is a Democrat, saying, oh, this is bad, but I think it's a byproduct of COVID policies. I got news for you. Before COVID, Illinois schools were failing. And it's Illinois, it's, ba it's Baltimore, Chicago, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., a lot of these blue cities where there are illiterate kids running around, and they're doing it at twice or even three times the cost of what other public schools are spending on students that are doing much better. Well, what I was going to say about that is maybe could the teachers and the administrators and everything be saying that this their proficiency is zero in order to ask for more money, right? Like it's okay, you know, this is great. We haven't taught anybody. And, and the more, the worse our kids do, the more money we can ask for to fix the problem. Paul, I think you're right. I think they do that, right? I mean, they continue to say, look, our schools are broken. We need to address public school education. Give us more money. Arizona Governor Katie Hobbs was asked very recently by a reporter, 
you know, Hobbes herself went to a parochial private school and credited her father for making the sacrifices so that she could go to a school like that. Now, because she's in the pocket of teachers unions, she's trying to kill school choice legislation in Arizona. And the reporter said, hey, but you benefited from that. Why shouldn't parents in Arizona have the same choice? And of course, she had an incoherent response. But all of these people, like Katie Hobbs, will tell you that these problems can be solved with just a few more dollars. I want to play something for you. This was another clip that went viral this week. A school in Carmel, Indiana. It's a public school, apparently. And it's not a video, but you'll, you'll be able to hear and get an idea of the gist of this. Basically, these, these students who are very proud of their high school campus. Listen to this. This is our natatorium. This is the hallway of fame. This is our three-story freshman center. This is CHTV. This is our live radio. <laughs> this is the yearbook room. This is the auto shop. This is the wood shop. Wow, that makes me want to be an auto mechanic. <laughs> or at the very least, a teacher or a guidance counselor at that school. Amazing. Yeah, everybody's probably a little jealous looking at these kids. I, I went to a school, you know, sort of like, uh, you know, in Southern California, very nice, very nice public school that would probably look something like uh, the school in Saved by the Bell or Zoe 101, very, very cushy school. By comparison to Carmel High School in Indiana, you know, I went to a joke of a school. But the thing is, Paul, is that those kids who are very proud and should be proud of that school, um, you know, that video, by the way, invoked a lot of outrage from people. Look at these white kids out there. You know, they're, they have all these resources. I think that school costs less per student than all of these failing schools in Chicago, Baltimore, and Washington, D.C., probably by half. Well, you're actually right there. I did, I looked up some statistics and some education, uh, some numbers uh, in different states and cities. So I wanna give you guys some really interesting information here. So according to the New York City Charter Center and the Citizens Budget Commission in New York, they spend $35,941 per public school student in the New York City public schools. To give you an idea, let's just say, I'm taking out my calculator here. I'm getting older. I can't do all this math in my head. Let's just say you got 30 kids in a class, right? Could be more than that in the public schools. So you're spending that much per student. Usually is. Yeah, usually usually is. But I'm being conservative. I'm going to say 30 kids. That is $1,078,230 per classroom being spent in New York, okay? So let's say the teacher makes... Let's just say 70,000 a year, which is probably more than they make. It's probably what they should make, right? So you subtract that. That's still over a million dollars left over total being spent on that classroom. How do you spend a million dollars on one public school classroom? Even if you take in the cost of the building, the cost of the books, the cost of the electricity, the cost, where's all that money going, right? And then I go to Carmel, Indiana. And I do a little study there to see how much is being spent there. Carmel schools spend $10,576 
per student, less than a third of what a New York City public school spends. Yeah, and there was a person on Twitter that that said, when you see this video, and then you look at the other, quote, publicly funded high schools in Indianapolis, you realize how blatantly racist Indiana is. This tweet had over 9 million views. But as you state, Paul, the Carmel School spends between 3,500 to 6,000 less per student than the Indianapolis public schools. At, in Indianapolis city schools, 6 and 26% are proficient in math and reading, respectively. 6% in math. At Carmel, that number is 71% in math and 89% in reading. So basically, the idea that more money to public schools is absolutely wrong. And we should reevaluate that. You are being sold a bill of goods. These government schools that are failing are not failing because of money. That's not why they're failing. And so people like Ron DeSantis, Glenn Youngkin, and others are absolutely correct to attack the teachers' unions and the bureaucracy of these schools because it's, it's not the money, Paul. No, it's not at all. And that can be even further seen by charter schools. So in New York City... Charter schools spend $17,626 per student, which is half what the public schools spend. And yet, math proficiency in the charter schools in New York is 46.3%. In the public schools, it's 37.9%. English proficiency is 55.3% in the charters, 49% in the public schools. And you're getting that for less than half the expense. So there is no argument whatsoever that money does anything. If you look at the public schools, you've got a huge amount of money going to the teachers union. You have a huge administrative oversight bureaucracy uh, piece. You have way more employees than you need, probably at the New York City Department of Education at the the center, uh, the headquarters. You've probably got thousands of employees sitting around doing nothing. This has just become sort of a jobs welfare program for people that work in the education department, not an actual place to teach students. The students are kind of this byproduct that they kind of have to exist in the public school system just so that everybody else can keep their jobs. Uh, Absolutely. I I have some friends uh, in Texas. I have one friend whose entire family went into education. And a couple of them were teachers, but others tried to go on to be administrators. And they were touting this as, when you asked them why they did it, they said, well, because number one, job security. Number two, we get summers off. I mean, it sounded like a welfare program the way they were describing it. And there are legions of people like this, Paul, that aren't driven by a passion to educate children. It's just a good job for them. And it's a government job. And it has, you know, pensions and, and benefits and, and obviously some scheduling things. Apparently, you only have to show up one or two days a week. Um, but the student in Orange County, Florida, Ethan, or this, this teacher, Ethan Hooper, he's just one of tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands that are not paid all that well, but not really that qualified. This isn't about teacher pay. We, we all agree, and, and we talked about the new law in uh, the, the Teacher's Bill of Rights, that is going to pay teachers in Florida more. We agree teachers deserve more. But when you talk about $35,000 per student 
that money is not making its way into the hands of the teachers. It's an incredibly inefficient way of, of doing it, and it's, it's not working. The whole thing is kind of a joke. It's like uh, teachers should go into teaching because they like it. It was never really determined. It was never really put out there as just a, a jobs employee program, right? I'm trying to go in here and figure out. But there are quite a few that do it for that reason. Yeah, there are. I've been trying to look up some things while we're here. I know that the New York City Department of Education has a budget of $38 billion. <laughs> you know, I think Kathy Hochul, though, I've heard is starting to come around on this because the schools in New York City and other cities there in New York are so bad that she's actually starting to come around on this, which would be good. I know, but what can really be changed with the, with the unions, right? I mean, that's, as we've talked about here on the Midnight Ride, that's number one has to, has to be killed for any of these schools to have a hope. A lot of people shocked that Paul Runyon's kids are in public school, but my kid is in public school, okay? All of my kids were out of financial necessity. I would love to send them to Catholic school or parochial school, but I can't. I go to every school board meeting every month now because after COVID, I heard some things that really alarmed me. And one of the things that I learned out here in the American West in a pretty well-performing public school district is that the superintendent at the district in which my kids go to school made over $300,000 last year. So that's about seven times the average salary of the average person in the, the average worker in the U.S. And I think it's, it should be at least three and a half to four times the amount that a teacher makes. Easily three times. Yeah, definitely four. And you know what the main job of the superintendent is, right? All he does is ask for more money. Like his main job is just to like lobby the politicians for more budget every year. Well, I imagine he's, because his, his base salary, I think was, you know, like two, 230 or something, but there were all sorts of stipends and benefits that pushed that up over 300. And I would, I will tell you if to our listeners, if you are, if your kids are in public school, you know, you can go to these meetings and, and they have to put it out at these school board meetings. What, these folks are making. And I encourage everybody to go and look at that. I mean, this individual makes over $300,000 last year. And, you know, there's, there's teachers going to, you know, Office Depot to buy school supplies. And yeah, they're going to Office Depot to buy school supplies. And yet there's still a million dollars being spent in that classroom, right? Based on the per student amount. Yep. And then you go to Carmel High School where they're they're spending significantly less and they have, you know, a gymnasium that looks like a college field house. They have a radio station and a TV station and an auto shop. And you go to a lot of private schools who are also spending their money more efficiently. And you realize that it is all a scam. I mean, these inner city schools are getting all this money, but they're having to dole it out to their political cronies and, and union members and everything else. Well, it's all a big circle. I mean, the, so the, the, they get all that money, a huge part of that, you know, the money that goes to the teachers, you know, a percentage of that gets paid by the, goes to the union. And then the union turns around and gives that money back to the democratic politicians that then ask for more money so that it goes around and the union gets more money. And then it goes back to the democratic politicians. It's just like this illegal political, you know, fundraising scam. 
the whole entire thing. It's like a, it's a joke. Absolutely. But what will they always say? Black and brown students, students from marginalized groups, we need to discriminate at the university level and, and at places like Thomas Jefferson School for, for science, the sciences. We have to discriminate against Asian students and white students because of institutional racism. If you want to talk to me about institutional racism, let's start with these public schools in the inner city where zero kids can read, zero kids are proficient in math. That is because of these teachers' unions. It is because of these mayors like Lori Lightfoot and, and Bill de Blasio and others that have absolutely failed these kids. The only way this works is you have to be a right-to-work state. I'd be interested to know, I mean, I guess we need to figure this out. I mean, teachers' unions are pretty strong everywhere, but I'd be interested to know the districts in parts of the U.S. that are right-to-work with weaker unions and what the difference is. Well, we are going to continue to follow this here on the Midnight Ride. Again, if you can get your kids out of public schools, do so. If you cannot, go to the meetings and hold these people to account. Ron DeSantis of Florida, the Teachers' Bill of Rights, which we talked about just a few weeks ago, he's taking on the teachers' unions and trying to get teachers more money. Something else he's doing, though, is drawing a little bit more controversy, and it deals with the news media. We'll talk about that next when we come back on The Midnight Ride. Paul, these are interesting times that we live in. There's no question that elites around the world are trying to control the narrative in the public square from big companies like Meta and Twitter taking money from the government and journalist organizations not trying to speak truth to power, but rather trying to protect the power base. The media has abdicated its role of the fourth estate, at least here in the United States they have. And it's taking an interesting turn. Uh, Glenn Greenwald just wrote a, a really compelling article about how in Brazil, where he currently lives, they are trying to pass a law that would severely limit the power of the press. And now we see in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis is working with a state senator by the name of Alex Andrade to basically propose a bill that will roll back some protections that the press has. I think it's worth discussing. Well, yeah, it's interesting. I thought, I thought the name was Andrade, not Andrade, but you know that better than I do. Yeah, it is Andrade. Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> so... <laughs> Well, I mean, the real problem that we've been seeing with the media now is just, it's not like there's these small number of media outlets like there used to be and a journalistic code. I mean, now these organizations are all partisan. They're out to do gotcha. They're out to ruin people's lives. I mean, these are not real journalists. So the landscape has changed so much. I mean, we saw that with the Russia narrative, right? It's like the media could essentially say whatever they wanted to, to say about Trump collusion even though they knew it was fake and have no credibility whatsoever. You could see how the media destroyed that kid, Nick Sandman, a few years ago um, when he was in D.C. Um, with the, I don't know if everybody remembers that, but... That was the kid on the steps of the memorial with a Make America Great Again hat. And he was supposedly laughing in the face of this Native American gentleman. Well, 
you know, the, the media selectively showed you some things. They didn't show you everything. Sandman went on to sue a number of media organizations and got out-of-court settlements with, I think, CNN and um, a few others, right? The problem is, is that that's not journalism. And it becomes really hard to define. So, I mean, there was, in 1964, there was a U.S. Supreme Court ruling. It was called New York Times versus Sullivan. And it limited a public officials' ability to sue publishers for defamation. And, you know, it used to be that you could do that. And they limited it, I guess, because they're public figures. They made some distinction and essentially turned it into open season where the media could do whatever they want and nothing happened to them. Now, I'm all for freedom of the press, right? I think it's important for journalists to gather the news, to report the facts on all sides. But I think it goes too far when journalists just become this organization that can say, oh, we hate DeSantis. Let's just go trash him. I mean, I've seen DeSantis come back. He's actually now on a boycott of NBC, MSNBC, and all NBC local news affiliates over some, uh, I guess, lies that Andrea Mitchell had said about the you know, some of his, the don't say the the Parental Choice and Education Act or whatever it was. Or no, 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 it was the African-American history saying that, essentially saying that DeSantis is is not allowing uh, schools to teach about slavery, yeah. which is a complete falsehood. But of course, there's no, there's no, I mean, what's the recourse, right? It's like he could boycott and they probably don't want him on anyway because they're like left wing. So, I mean, what do you do in a situation like that? As you mentioned, I mean, Donald Trump in the whole Russia, Russia Gate thing was a falsehood. There were falsehoods printed on a regular basis about President Trump. There was the one where unnamed sources said that he was going by, a, a, or he said he wouldn't visit a, a cemetery in France where the U.S. troops from World War II were interned because I don't, you know, those people are losers. That was turned out to be completely false. Lots of stories with unnamed sources printed about Donald Trump. Let's go the other way. What about like Newsmax and OAN and organizations like that talking about conspiracy theories on the stolen 2020 election with Dominion voting and everything else? I mean, that there's no facts to back that up either. No, no there's I not. I mean, you've got, but right? I mean, we got the both sides just saying literally whatever they want and becoming propaganda outlets. DeSantis as maybe the leading candidate in the country if you look at a lot of polls and just look at his success that he's had down in Florida. Everything the, the quote-unquote mainstream media has done on him has been a lie. From the Parental Rights and Education Act, the media, you know, propagated this narrative that you couldn't say gay. The AP history class, that he doesn't want to teach black history. Well, no, it was that he didn't want to teach queer theory and, you know, abolishing the prison system and all the other activist things that were put in there. I think the Florida Department of Education is reviewing a new curriculum now where it is being considered. But the media has lied about DeSantis from day one, and it's very clear why. He is a threat to their bosses, the elites. He is a threat to the leftist power structure. But I want to get into that bill. You know, I'm a little bit torn. You know, what Greenwald posits is that all around the world— Elites and you know despotic leftist governments and despotic governments on the right are trying to crush dissent 
and freedom of press. And the case in Brazil, this, this leftist Lula, he's being watched by all these people around the world. And he mentioned the Disinformation Governance Board in the United States. You know, we talked about Scary Poppins and the fact that this thing was stood up. And the backlash was fast and furious from the American public. They disbanded the board, but then it came out later that they're still trying to do some of this work. Even in the United States, our government would like to limit dissent. Yeah, so that's what Greenwald says about Brazil. But here we go with DeSantis. And, you know, the New York Times versus Sullivan case, Andrade, the the state senator in Florida, says, well, you can make a strong argument that the Supreme Court overreached in that case. That's not the government shutting down free speech. This is a private cause of action. Here's what the Florida law could potentially do. It would allow plaintiffs who sue media outlets for defamation, people like maybe Kyle Rittenhouse, Nick Sandman, and others, to collect attorney's fees. Yeah, let me get into that for a second, because you, if you're, what makes that different is that when you're allowed to collect attorney's fees, it actually makes it worthwhile for an attorney to, to take the case. So for example, if you don't collect attorney's fees in the case, an attorney is going to be like, well, if I'm just working on contingency and there's no, I could end up doing all this work and get zero. I'm not, because defamation cases are, you know, it's kind of a high bar, right? I can't, there's no reason for me to take it. There's no financial incentive. But if you can collect attorney's fees by saying, okay, I'm going to sue whatever, a news outlet, right? And I got to pay all these these fees to the attorney and I lose. And of course, I'm not rich, right? I'm just a random person. I got even Ron DeSantis, right? He does, he's not a rich guy. I think his, his net worth is like, it's, you know, not, not, it's around $300,000. I think most of that is in his house, right? Yeah. So he wouldn't have a lot of money to pay an attorney, right? But if he wins that case, the attorney can then, his attorney can collect or the fees from say the media outlet, the person, you know, so if that media outlet loses, so an attorney can then say he makes money. If they meet that high bar and prove defamation. Yeah. But only if they win, right? Yeah, only if they win. So it's like if an attorney, the problem before is that even if it's a cut and dry case, if the plaintiff doesn't have the money to pay the attorney, they won't take the case. So it can't even happen. This way you have attorneys that can collect fees. I think that's a great law. I do too. Here's, here's some more provisions of it. Uh, provision specifying that comments made by anonymous sources are presumed false for the purpose of defamation lawsuits. That's an interesting. That is. Right? Let's break that down for a second. So there are special protections that journalists have for disclosing uh, anonymous sources. They don't have to do it, right, as the way it works now. And what happens is you get these cases and these anonymous sources say something. The plaintiff says, wait, that's false but there's no way to verify that anything's real. You don't know if the anonymous source is real. You don't even know if that's a real person. The journalist doesn't have to disclose it. So this is going essentially to say that, okay, well, Mr. Journalist, prove to us- You didn't just make that up. Yeah, you didn't just make that up, right? I don't see anything wrong with that. There has to be some sort of accountability. Uh, Yeah, I mean, this is a slippery slope potentially, right? Some of the most important journalism work that has been done that, you know, maybe brought down governments and other things 
was based on reporting from people who were on the inside, but if they gave their identities, it's almost like a spy being discovered. You know, they, they have to keep their cover. I mean, I don't think, it's not saying that you have to disclose the source. It's just saying that if you've been sued for defamation and you want to, you want to avoid the liability, you can't claim a special privilege to avoid disclosing the source, you know, to avoid liability. So for example, you know, with all this Trump-Russia stuff, there were so many anonymous sources saying like, Trump colluded with the Russians, right? We all know that was fake. And they just hid behind anonymous sources, right? And I keep going back to that thing of the, with the French cemetery. I mean, if I were Donald Trump, I would have sued on that one. I mean, what a joke that people actually believed that. And there were others too. There was one where there was something involving the Russians in Afghanistan that, that they fired at our troops or something. I mean, every day there was a new lie about Trump and every day there's a new lie about DeSantis. And yet, so that one's, that one's a tie. I'll allow that one. You, you think that one's okay? I think so. I mean, it just, uh, the goal is to make a journalist think twice about just putting in a fake anonymous source, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's getting them to think, okay, well, I can use anonymous sources, but it has to be real. You know, obviously, if it's real and it's true, I can't really get sued for defamation and I'll win that case. There's two more. One is it would lower the legal threshold for a public figure to successfully sue for defamation because, you know, you and I, we can, we can sue for defamation, but Ron DeSantis or Britney Spears or Bradley Cooper, you know, they can't sue because, quote unquote, they are public figures and they should expect to be talked about or, or whatever. This would lower the standard for that. And the final one is it would repeal the, quote, journalist's privilege section of Florida law, which protects journalists from being compelled to reveal the identity and source of sources in court for defamation lawsuits. So yeah, the journalist privilege thing would go away. This has journalists in Florida and all across the nation really worried, Paul. Well, they do because it's sort of taking away a lot of their their special privileges, right? It's like you can't, you know, journalists could act with impunity. And, you know, right now there's no, they can do whatever they want and they don't even have to sort of think about it. So, you know, it's a problem for them. And of course they're going to fight it, right? But I think it's, I think it's good. I don't think it's a First Amendment violation. The freedom of the press is not being violated here. It's just trying to add some credibility and rein in what's been happening. It's, it's, it's a shot across the bow to journalists saying, hey, report the facts. Don't make things up, right? Don't destroy people's lives for the fact of destroying people's lives and promoting your own political narratives and beliefs. And I think it's good. And of course, we're going to hear he's an authoritarian. He's trying to, you know, turn us into the Soviet Union and control the press. That, that's all fake. That's once again, journalists doing that. We need accountability in the media. We need it now. And I love to see DeSantis on the forefront of it, right? You used to see Donald Trump saying the media is the enemy of the people, the media, the media, the media. He did, I didn't see him do anything like this to, to rein them in. And I see DeSantis doing it and it's great. Well, you know, I was very uncomfortable back in 2016, 2015, 2016, when Donald Trump called the media the enemy of the American people. I said, okay, you're going to the Hugo Chavez playbook here. That What are you doing there, Mr. Trump? And what did they do in response? 
they validated every word that he said. They proved him right. They either took the bait or he was he knew what was going to happen. But the American media is completely corrupt. We should also mention that the business model for media is different than it used to be. You're not your circulation numbers or your ratings numbers are not the only thing. In fact, for the newspapers, it's all online based. It's not how many newspapers you can sell in the five boroughs. It's how many subscriptions can you get nationally or even internationally? And how do you get those people to keep clicking? If you basically brand yourself as the anti-Trump, then you have to keep feeding the beast. And that is what is going on. And that's another subtext to this. One thing I think, you know, Paul, you mentioned giving people pause about printing fake stuff and making stuff up. You know, what other profession, and, and we, we all agree that journalist is the most important profession for our democracy that there is, you know, and, and that's why the First Amendment is so important. But, you know, doctors and doctors have to pass a medical exam. They have to take the Hippocratic Oath, the one that we sh shared with you last week. Lawyers have to pass a bar exam. There's all, and we're going to get into licensure in our final segment, but there's all sorts of different credentials that you have to earn in all of these other professions. And if you violate the laws of that profession, you lose your license. There's no such thing in journalism, and maybe there should be. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's a good idea, right? There's a quote in the Politico article where I originally saw this about the DeSantis Law, and there's a guy from uh, a place called the Hamilton Lincoln Law Institute, which advocates for free markets, free speech, and limited government. And he says, quote, one of my largest concerns with the bill is the rolling back of the anti-slap protection for defamation lawsuits. So that's sort of the, the New York Times or the New York Times for Sullivan case that provides protections uh, and the, also allows the collection of attorney's fees. And he goes, that's just moving in the wrong direction. And I look at him and it's, it's, he's talking about limited government. But then I think to myself, the way it is now is big government because it's the big government providing these special protections for this one group of people, journalists, against these lawsuits and not providing it for anybody else. That's big government. That's not limited government. Limited government is giving everybody an equal playing field, right? I really like the idea of establishing a credentialing process through which journalists can be licensed. And, and if you want to go on air, if you want to write for a publication, I mean, we have so many citizen journalists now armed with iPhones in their pockets that can go out and break stories. But I do think that if you want to work for one of these major outlets, you should be licensed and you should have that license revoked if, for instance, you are proven to be printing false stories with anonymous sources, et cetera. One other thing that's interesting about this, though, is if you sue the New York Times for defamation, well, they might be able to pay that. But what about, you know, some substack journalist or some small, you know, somebody with the Solana Sun or the, you know, some small newspaper, but they might go out of business if they're found guilty of defamation. Yeah. And the bar to, to proving defamation is very high. So if you're actually going to defame somebody, like, you know, you're defaming somebody. I mean, to, to win in a, in a case like that, it has to be willful and everything else. So, I mean, I think you would think twice about defaming somebody on purpose if you knew your business was at risk. Yeah, and the New York Times... I mean, this is a fantastic... Yeah, and these big companies, they should pay dearly for playing loose and hard with the facts and, and coming after 
um, the enemies of their political masters. I, I'm, you're selling me on this, Paul. I'm starting to come around. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm often a good salesman like that. I make a lot of convincing arguments. <laughs> I'm glad that they work on you. Um, maybe I can get you to wire me some money someday. But. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I don't need it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so the so I like where this is going. I'd love to see this pass, and I'd love to see a court battle get set up with it and see where it goes. I think it could go either way. I don't know where justices stand on this. It is a constitutionally murky area, but I do think that it is something that's important because... I'm not allowed to defame somebody. You're not allowed to defame somebody in your non-journalistic capacity, right? Yet, if you're a journalist, you are. It just doesn't make sense. And I don't like the government picking winners and losers like this. So we, something we're going to watch, and I know we're going to keep everybody updated. No, absolutely. Well, you don't need a license to practice journalism, but you do need a license to cut hair, to be a travel guide, even to be an auctioneer. We'll discuss the ridiculous trend of government-required licenses when we come back on The Midnight Ride. Paul, big government, whether it's federal, state, or local, is always looking at new ways to steal our money. And uh, I was reading an article that came out Friday in one of my favorite or not-so-favorite news outlets, The Atlantic. And I want to get your reaction to this. The headline is, Permission Slip Culture is Hurting America. And I'll just read from the lead. This article is written by Jerusalem Demsis. And it says, in Louisiana, it takes $1,485 and roughly 2,190 days to become an interior designer. The District of Columbia requires $740 to become an auctioneer and you have to have a college degree to watch someone else's kids. Of course, you don't need a degree to watch your own. And in Kansas, you have to cough up $200 to work as a funeral attendant. There's more examples in the article. And then it was behind a paywall. Uh, I sent it to you, and uh, you apparently have access to it. What's, the, what's going on here? So first of all, it's interesting that I saw this in the Atlantic, right? Because it's that's always thought of as kind of a left-wing publication, but I love to see the reporting on this because it is something that's been a big problem. And you, these huge bureaucracies that uh, have created these licensing is, is an issue, right? There's a couple interesting things going on with a lot of these rules in the states. The first one is, you know, why do you have to pay money to be able to do these things to the state, right? Like, why should it cost, if you want to be a cosmetologist, why do you have to give the state money for that, right? Like, that doesn't make sense. And I, I started looking into this, and a lot of these state departments, first of all, you know, they're funded by these fees. So there are government employees at these state houses and, and county offices whose entire salary is dependent upon these fees being paid. In other exactly. So they're not funded by taxpayer dollars. They're funded by the fees themselves. So they have an incentive to raise the fees and make it as <laughs> onerous as possible for you to get these licenses. Because if it's very onerous, that means they have to hire more people to... Your salaries go up. Yeah, the salaries go up, all of that. So there's one. that's one area that, that is an issue with the government. The other one is, 
I found out that all of these, uh, and I found this out in the article, that all of these states, they all have these individual trade associations. So there's like a trade association for cosmetologists. There's a trade association for auctioneers. There's a, a trade association for funeral attendants. All of them have these groups that represent them. And specifically in these states that have these big permit requirements. And they're essentially acting as anti-competitive organizations. So they try to push these, these needs for the licensing and the fees, and then they try to keep other people out. So these trade associations then collect fees from the licensed people to keep themselves going. Wow, what a scam. It is, right? But what's interesting also about this article is that, well, there's 102 low-income occupations across the country that, you know, where most states require these fees. But 88% of those applications of those are actually unlicensed in at least one state. So that suggests that it's arbitrary. Interesting. This reminds me of teachers unions, right? I mean, if you want to, do you have to join one of these trade associations? Let's say you want to be a funeral attendant in Kansas. Do you have to join the funeral attendance association? That's a good question. I'm not sure. I know that some of the fees from the government go to these associations to help, like, quote, keep the standards <laughs> going. So it probably does go, like, through, you know, once again, it's like the teachers union kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> it, go, it goes back. What's interesting, according to uh, a study that was in the Atlantic article, in 71 occupations, including all the barbering and beauty occupations that were studied, they face a greater average burden in getting sort of their licensing and getting into the profession than an entry-level emergency medical technician. So if you're an EMT, it's easier for you to become an EMT than it is for you to become a barber. Well, you know, these, these professions, I, I look at big government right now, particularly with the Biden administration and the IRS going after Venmo transactions, going after auditing all these folks and trying to find out if money's being, you know, hidden from them, small transactions. And then you see something like this, where there's a scam against these folks, where they have to pay these exorbitant fees, licensing requirements for professions that, quite frankly, it's a little bit ridiculous that they need a license to do. And it's, it comes at a time where Americans are having a hard time putting food on the table, Paul. I mean, eggs are like a dozen eggs now costs, you know, close to $5. There's all sorts of inflationary strains that are hurting these lower middle class, middle class folks. You would think that at least the party that quote unquote represents the small guy would want to do that, would want to would want to take this on. But no, they're the ones perpetrating it. This seems like a, a fertile ground for the Republicans to come in and try to save the day, Paul. Well, it does, especially at the state level, because um, not only are people having a hard time putting money on the table, but we also have a labor shortage. And this is exacerbating the, the labor shortage. There was one, so two pieces. One, there was a study of uh, immigrant workers, and it found that additional training significantly reduces the number of Vietnamese manicurists. So an average county could expect a 17.6% decline in Vietnamese manicurists per capita for every 100 hours of required training, right? And that's because these immigrant manicurists cannot afford the training. 
Wait, are you telling me that the, the people doing my wife's nails might not be trained? No. Well, it's well, it's possible. <laughs> Depends on the state, right? They seem to be doing a pretty good job. I know, I know. Well, I'm sure they are trained, but what I'm saying is there would be more of them if the training and the onerous licensing was less, which would then result in lower costs for your wife to get those nails done because of greater availability of labor. So you're paying more money because of this the the protection that these uh, trade associations are providing workers and then and making it impossible for businesses to hire qualified people. The other argument that's used by a lot of these states is saying, well, we have to have these licensing because it's going to, you know, help with quality control and high standards. And actually a report by the Obama White House in 2015 concluded that, quote, most research does not find that licensing improves quality or public health and safety at all. And in fact, quote, stricter licensing was associated with quality improvements in only two out of the 12 studies reviewed. So there's no added benefit to this at all. I think the free market can help with the quality, right? I mean, it, well, that's what I think. If you don't, you know, if you go to a barber and he doesn't, your hair doesn't look good when you come out, go use a different barber, right? Yeah. And it's, you know, some of these professions too, in the Navy, you know, on, on a ship when I, when I was serving, you know, the people who worked in the barbershop, that was their life's passion. They wanted to do that. Many of them got out and did that when they got out. That was their their whole thing. I mean, these Vietnamese or or anybody who's doing nails, it's possible that they learned that from their mom. You know, th these are things that, you know, they were taught that they don't need special training because they're getting that. It's like the family business. But these are people who may not make as much money as a insurance salesman, but this is something that some of these folks have been wanting to do since they were little kids. And, you know, they don't get paid enough to deal with these ridiculous government scams. No, they don't. And a lot of these groups, it's like these associations, these trade associations are in bed with the government. There was one piece where the you see the American Medical Association lobbied against allowing nurse practitioners to expand their duties. And it was done to, it was like the states, they and then the states consider legislation to recognize allowing these nurses to expand their duties. The doctors come out and say, no, that's competition to us, right? Like, why can't a nurse practitioner who studies do some very basic things, but they don't allow that to happen? One area where these have an impact is also on residency, right? So for example, a lot of states don't allow say like, let's say if you're in Wisconsin and you're a barber, right? Minnesota may not recognize that barber's license and you have to go through the entire training and the cost again. Mm. So essentially you're keeping workers, you know, the trade association in Minnesota is protecting people in Minnesota and keeping new barbers from coming in from Wisconsin. Trained barbers. Trained barbers yep. to do that work. So, I mean, this it's hurting workers, it's hurting people that, that need services done, and the people that really get hurt the most are the low income, because these are really low income occupations that, that face this burden. You know, it's interesting, you mentioned the Republicans coming in to fix this, mm -hmm. and one Republican governor is. Last week, Chris Sununu, governor of New Hampshire, mm -hmm. announced that he would seek to fully remove 34 different outdated licenses from state government and eliminate 14 underutilized regulatory boards. Boom. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And also, he's saying 
if you have a similar license uh, and are in good standing in another state, there's no reason why you shouldn't have that license on day one in New Hampshire. I mean, that's common sense conservatism. Common sense conservatism. It's getting big government out of the way. It's like, it's stopping these special interests. What's the state motto up there? Live free or die. Live free or die. Yep. I think this is a winning argument because I think the average person, you know, if you're a worker or you're somebody that gets these services done, I think any, everybody in, a, in specific states can relate to this. No, absolutely. And, you know, it, Glenn Youngkin was the vanguard of the parental rights movement. Ron DeSantis has picked up where he has left off. There have been many governors uh, who have been following the lead of, of other Republican governors to try to stop child mutilation. These things can become trends. And I think that Republican governors and even, you know, some Democratic governors would be wise to follow Sununu's example here. And, you know, this goes beyond licenses for, for barbers. I mean, I bought a top-of-the-line water heater a few years ago for my home in California. I had to pay like almost $100 to have some bureaucrat from City Hall come in and go, yep, it, it looks good. It checks out. I mean, this was a top of the line, brand new thing. And I mean, if you're uh, somebody who sells cotton candy at the county fair, you have to pay a licensing fee for the machine that you use. There are literally thousands of these types of government licensure scams. And I would just say to all the Midnight Riders, if you're dealing with something like this, contact your state representative or your state senator, you just might get this thing taken away. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, I feel like this, a lot of these state senators, state lawmakers, they have a lot going on. There's a lot of priorities and they might not all be thinking about something like this. But if people were to call them and make that change, it gives them an issue that relevates their name. Listen, we can't just sit here and just throw up our hands and go, oh, this sucks. It's a government of, by, and for the people. And I think that some of these issues at the local and state level can be won if we make our voices heard. Exactly. Dismantling these trade associations. There's another stat from this article I found interesting. This Atlantic article was really fantastic. I always used to like the Atlantic, and then it kind of went really far left, and I didn't like it. But, but when they do good journalism, they really do good journalism. Well, another study they quoted was that it, it is true that wages go up based on you know, these licenses. So people make more when you have the licenses because you're limiting labor. But the study also found that all the money that they have to spend on the training to get the license actually cancels out the extra wages. And they, in fact, it's even less. So the wages are higher, but based up because they spent all that money on the training, they're actually making less than uh, if they were in a, in a state where the licenses weren't required. That should be pinned to the top of every, you know, trade, so every trade publication, everything. People need to know that these associations are not acting in their best interest. Final thoughts for the week, Paul. This has been a really interesting episode. It's been all about big government. You know, we love to talk about big government, but this really shows whether it's, it's schools, whether it's, you know, these rulings with the media, whether it's these licensing. As Reagan said, government is the problem, right? Government's not the solution to our problems. Government is the problem. And until we realize that and stop government from getting bigger and bigger and bigger, this country is going to continue 
to decline. Well, it's a great point as always. And, you know, I think the hairdressers and cosmetologists and interior designers all over the country, they know that government is the problem, but their voice is being drowned out by people like Zuckerberg and Bezos and others. And that's why we have this show here at the Midnight Ride. We want to thank you for listening. We hope that you'll join us again next week. Continue to tell your friends and give us those five-star ratings. And we'll be back in the month of March. Hopefully the country will get some better weather next week and we'll be with you to celebrate it. We'll see you next week on another edition of the Midnight Ride Podcast. Have a great week. 